Good afternoon. This is Dr. Kyle Infield with the Society of Critical Care of Medicine's Eye Critical Care. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Walid Al-Hazani and Dr. Mitchell Levy, who are going to be t talking to us about the new COVID-19 guidelines. We're all, like you, preparing, planning, and caring for critically ill patients with COVID-19, but we thought it would be a good time to take out of our day to discuss how those guidelines were developed, what surprises came out of those guidelines, and what information we still need to know. I'm going to ask Dr. Levy and Dr. Al-Hazani to introduce themselves and also reveal if they have any disclosures that the audience should be aware of. Dr. Levy? Hi, um, I'm uh, Mitchell Levy. Uh, I'm the uh, Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Warren Albert School at Brown University, and I'm the Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Rhode Island Hospital, and I'm a former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Al-Hazani? Hi, my name is Walid Al-Hazani. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine and Health Research Methodology at McMaster University in Canada. I am the methods chair on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID-19 Guidelines. Um, I'm also a um, intensivist and uh, a gastroenterologist by specialty. Thank you all both for taking the time out today. Uh, I'd like to start with, uh, with you, Dr. Al-Hazani, and talking about what was the process used for picking the core questions for this new COVID-19 um, guideline, um, and what process was used to review the literature and uh, to get these guidelines out? That's a great, uh, great question. Um, uh, so given that COVID-19 is relatively a new and rapidly spreading illness, we felt the urge to uh, issue some guidance to or help issue some guidance to clinicians and, and uh, especially those dealing with uh, acutely or critically ill patients in the intensive care unit. Um, one could argue that if there is enough evidence, um, you know, and high quality evidence guidelines might be less uh, important. Um, others may say, well, it's, we need guidance when there is lots of gray area and uncertainty, um, some guidance might be helpful. Um, now, how did we choose the question we, we decided uh, with the chairs uh, and myself uh, about the scope of the guideline. We thought to focus on four main uh, themes of the guideline um, that is related to the management of critically ill patients with COVID-19. The first um, uh, was on infection control and testing. So it has, has to do mostly with healthcare workers and keeping their, you know, ensuring their safety and um, and addressing the relevant recommendations uh, on this section. We also focused on um, supportive care, which was divided into two main domains. One is ventilatory support, given the fact that most of those patients who end up in the ICU end up being um, um, mechanical ventilation or some sort of life support. Um, the next section was on hemodynamics um, support as well. Um, given the fact that uh, also some uh, one of the other reason for admission to the intensive care unit is is hypotension and shock. Um, and the last part of the guideline or the last theme of the guideline was focused on therapy or therapeutic strategy that does not fit in any of the first uh, few sections that I've mentioned and are related to directly managing 
um, um, the, the disease itself or the therapies directed uh, against the virus or to support um, uh, you know, patients um, like corticosteroids and, and, and other, other interventions. So that was the first step is deciding what is the scope, what are the areas we want to address. And then um, discussion with experts. So we, we, we were lucky to have multiple experts, uh, over 35 experts from um, at least 12 countries um, around the world. Uh, many of those experts were, have treated patients with COVID-19 and were involved in the active management and also the scientific aspect related to this illness. So um, we assigned panel members to um, uh, each of those groups uh, based on expertise. And um, we decided on, we said, okay, what are the most important questions that clinicians need guidance for? And we addressed those questions based on um, uh, discussion and consensus. Another approach we used, we also looked at questions that were addressed in the previous surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, specifically related to hemodynamic support. And we said, which of those uh, recommendations or questions that would be relevant to the management of those patients. So that saved us some time in terms of defining which questions. Um, uh, for the last group on therapy, we asked the experts in the field as well, what are the therapeutic options that are important and need to be addressed quickly in this, um, in this guideline? And then we came up with the list and formulated the questions. Um, and this was the, uh, in a nutshell, the process of selecting the topics and the questions uh, related to the recommendations. Yeah, that, that was a, that was great. You could, uh, did a great job of summarizing how you got to those uh, questions. Uh, as a as a, a member and as a, a reader, I was fairly impressed at how fast you all were able to um, uh, develop this publication, especially with thirty five um, experts in the field coming together to to answer those questions. As you review the literature, were there any major surprises about where the, the recommendations led, or were do you feel like that as you were doing reviewing this, uh, what you found is, is that um, the guidelines pointed us to continue to practice uh, really exceptional critical care? Were there any, I guess, surprises specific to COVID nineteen that you uh, didn't anticipate? Okay, that's, that's another great question. Um, I would like to answer this question in, in two different parts. So the, the first um, part that's related um, to your question is um, how did we, you know, design or plan, um, you know, looking um, for literature conducting the systematic reviews. So the way we did it, we said um, this is a relatively new illness. We expect that there isn't much out there other than descriptive uh, papers and uh, that would help put things into context. Um, so the way we did it, we said, okay, we'll have to have two streams. One stream is to look for COVID-19 specific uh, scientific articles. The other stream is to look for indirect evidence um, that could be applicable or that we could extrapolate from to help manage the general critical, you know, uh, care support for those patients. So that's what we did. We conducted what's known as rapid reviews. Uh, we had a big team of uh, systematic um, uh, or a big team of uh, 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 called the systematic review team 
with people who are experts and have a lot of expertise in conducting systematic reviews. And we conducted rapid reviews and tried to collate the, the evidence quickly. We actually did that in the course of uh, 14 to 18 days, um, give or take. Um, so, um, so that's the first part of the question. We did actually have a pre-planned process that, you know, and we also followed, you know, pragmatically followed a, an algorithm that we developed in how to decide which indirect evidence is applicable and which is not. Because there is, uh, there are extremes of, um, you know, indirect, indirectness and applicability of the evidence to this context. And it will have, to, there's a lot of judgments that need to be made. And this judgment um, um, is also based on the clinical expertise of, of, the, of those members who have managed a large volume of those patients and also what have the literature, you know, described the course of the disease was. So it was an organized, but also pragmatic in the same time. Generally speaking, this process of guideline development and, and Dr. Levy, uh, you know, been leading the guidelines for many, many years, uh, it, the process takes anywhere between a year and a half to two years to develop, you know, a large, guideline based on you know sound systematic reviews and we, we tried to use a pragmatic approach and squeeze that in so we can produce an evidence-based but also timely guideline for clinicians so that's the first aspect the second aspect have we find any surprises well you know it's a, it's a surprise but it's not you know the the um, there wasn't much directly related to COVID-19, but we also found out that there are many, many RCTs or clinical trials that are ongoing, which um, uh, you know made us also design the guideline to be a living guideline, meaning that we will be updating recommendations if need be. If new evidence comes out and says, well, uh, you know, it seems that this intervention works or it doesn't work or something that would trigger us to change a recommendation the panel will assemble quickly and look at it and determine if a recommendation need to be changed or not, or if a new intervention that we have not addressed in our guideline uh, comes out that requires recommendation, same story will happen. We'll assemble the team and um, summarize the evidence and present it to the panel and issue recommendations. So um, I, I guess that's, um, this is one of the way that I see this guideline uh, would be useful to clinician because the accumulating evidence is is rapidly rapidly getting published and we'll have to keep up with it to make sure that we produce something useful to um, and up to date to the frontline clinicians. Thanks. I, I have been impressed with the number of publications coming out directly related to COVID nineteen, and uh, it's good to know that there's a plan for incorporating new high quality evidence as it comes forward because. Uh, the evidence that's coming out seems to range from uh, sort of observational data to uh, stronger uh, um, interventional data. So um, that's good to know that you guys will be updating it. Yes, Dr. Levy, I know that you and I spoke right before we started about the planning and preparations that you're undergoing um, in your health system. Are there questions that you wish could have been answered that you're wrestling with now as you develop your plans? Um, and, and that we could start thinking about how to answer with future research trials? Yeah, that's a great question, Kyle. I, I think that uh, the questions, the two most important questions that I think every healthcare system is dealing with is the uh, PPE question, the personal protective equipment, and the uh, ongoing trials for therapeutic interventions. So 
and, and as we know, in my institution, for instance, um, guidelines are changing very quickly. So we originally, in my institution, went with a hyper-protective and over-cautious approach where we were recommending uh, N95 respirators for any interaction with COVID-19 patients, uh, whether they were aerosol generating or not. And very quickly, as we realized that we were going to run short on N95s, we then became consistent with the CDC guidelines and our SSC guidelines, which is um, N95 respirators uh, for, and face shields for aerosol-generating procedures in COVID-19 patients. But apart from that, uh, a simple surgical mask with a, fa a full face shield is adequate. And, and that's, that's a, a moving target. And it certainly uh, is creating a lot of anxiety amongst caregivers in my institution and other institutions where they're facing either rapidly changing or changing, I should say, guidelines for what PPE looks like, and even worse, shortages uh, of the PPE uh, that they need. So that's, that's very, <clears throat> that's a real source of anxiety for a lot of caregivers on the front line. And the other, the other issue of questions that really need to be addressed still is the therapeutic trials. Um, we, as Waleed said, uh, one of the things we had to adjust to, I should say, that's the real difference between these COVID-19 guidelines as opposed to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Sepsis Guidelines is the absolute lack of evidence. Everything is small cohorts, tiny group studies, and of course, because of the uh, general concern and the desire to see anything that works, there, we're, we're seeing publications appear in fairly major journals that are very small numbered trials. People are seeing um, studies, prospective cohort trials appear with 20, uh, 20, um, 20 patients, 30 patients. So, so that makes it very difficult to really assess the evidence properly. And, and I think what needs to be done and is happening in many areas are good randomized controlled trials enrolling as many COVID-19 patients as possible uh, and so that we can make some sense of what the interventions are that actually work in these patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on, on both areas. I think the PPE challenge is one that we all face, um, not only the changing recommendations, but uh, uh, the reactions that we have to social media posts and, uh, and then additions of shortages. And I know that all of us are, have been wrestling with that within each of our institutions. I didn't prep you all for this question, so it's a slightly unfair, but I have wondered how do how do we as an SCCM community uh, share practices that we have developed um, that could benefit other locations? And, and I'll you know I'll highlight one from from our institution. We had contacts with Columbia, and they had uh, figured out a way to bring their ventilator monitors uh, outside of the room and still be able to control the ventilator safely. Uh, using a, a, a essentially an Ethernet cable cord and keep the room's negative pressure, and that's allowed our respiratory therapists to um, decrease their PPE utilization and exposure to the patients while still providing great care. And I, I've been challenged to figure out ways that how do we share that with our peers so that we can all learn together because it's going to be hard for it. It, it, would, it seems unfortunate that we each have to learn these as n of one studies with each with each, each institution. I wondered if you all could reflect briefly on that. Well, that's what the idea of the living guidelines are. I think that, as Waleed said, we're putting in place a process 
whereby we can incorporate uh, the most up-to-date literature very rapidly on, on whether it's the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines or not. And I think uh, on the surviving sepsis campaign website, uh, I think that uh, in addition to new literature, I think we'll also have an area where we'll list these best practice models, which we already do to a certain extent in the guidelines. That's great. I know that one of the questions that has come to me uh, from uh, other SCCM members in our community is, is uh, what, what messages can we be taking back to our hospital leadership now if we're not already uh, in a planning phase? And, and what steps should we advocate for at our local hospitals if, if they have not started planning? What processes should we be putting in place now, uh, recognizing that we're probably already behind um, where we should be, um, but as we also think towards the future um, for our plans? So I, I think I, I can't imagine that uh, that there is an area where people aren't planning already. Um, and I, I think that when I've talked to my colleagues, everybody understands the need to uh, develop a surge plan uh, for maximizing the number of ventilators and then going even beyond that in your institution and, and, and uh, planning on how you will stretch your staff far enough to be able to cover, uh, in my hospital, we're trying to plan for 200 uh, ventilated cases in the 700 bed, 750 bed hospitals. So I, I think that uh, the surge planning is probably the most important thing that all of us as critical care colleagues are uh, struggling with right now. Surge planning for the number of ventilators, for the amount of PPE, for where we're gonna put these patients and who's gonna take care of them. Dr. Alazani, as we all start to, to rest, grapple with this, um, in the not too distant future, though it seems distant today, we'll be in a situation where uh, we will hopefully get past the surge, and, and, but COVID-19 patients will still be sort of part, part of our uh, daily routine. Uh, what do you think that new uh, future state is going to look like for us as critical care providers as we think about uh, our ICUs uh, you know, six, nine months from now? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. You know, um, it's it's hard to give a a prediction. I, uh, you know, it seems to be going to be a little bit different than what happened with SARS. You know, we had a, a peak, and then we start to see the spread of cases, you know, ongoing, but nothing with large volumes. Um, I am hoping that it will be, you know, this way. But I think. You know, there will be a pre-COVID, uh, a post-COVID era where many things would change in, in, in the critical care um, daily practice. Um, people will probably plan, um, you know, ahead of time and plan properly. There will be more exposure to, um, you know, general practitioners to, um, to acute care, so they are ready when things like this happen. There will be more resources, but I also think that uh, you know the threshold for you know goals of care and of life discussion are probably going to change down the road. And um, even from a safety perspective and health care workers, I would suspect they'll be more um, you know conscious about um, about self protection, which I have to admit I'm one of those who used to be very sloppy when it comes to these things, and now after. Uh, you know what's happening now. People are like more conscious about about uh, these things. Now, how is it going to look in nine months from now? Is it going to be, you know, I think only time can tell. 
and um, that I'm hoping is going to be similar to SARS, where there's a you know, rapid peak and things slow down, maybe a second wave, and then you'll start to see sporadic uh, cases as people develop immunity to um, to the disease. But again, I could be completely wrong. It's just my own personal guess. I think we all have our own personal guess, but I think that's as, uh, as good a one as, as any. Um, I know both of you guys have uh, an immense load on your plate right now, so I, I want to take this time to say thank you for uh, taking the time to share these thoughts. Um, uh, for the, the listener, if you've not had a chance to read the uh, COVID-19 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines, um, they're a wonderful resource that uh, have helped uh, a lot of uh, institutions plan uh, for uh, COVID-19, and I, I commend them to your reading list today. Uh, thank you very much, and, and I, I will just uh, end with uh, Dr. Dr. Levy as a as um, a person who's has done this before. Any final thoughts to share with uh, the listeners today? Well, I think I think the most important thing is just to be good leaders, uh, whether physician, nurses, respiratory therapists, or any allied healthcare worker. That this is the time for us to rise to the occasion, to be uh, to be steadying a steadying influence and to really um, communicate to the people we work with that we'll get through this together. And that by working together and being willing to step up and do the right thing, uh, we'll come out of this uh, stronger and closer. Thank you very much for that. Have a great day and good luck to you both. Kyle Enfield, MD. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.